Good morning, sleepyhead Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I can't believe it. I'm going to tell the listeners, Sarah Hepla today, she slept till 6 a.m. I mean, this is unacceptable. I'm like a college student. I mean, it's crazy, Sarah. What were you raging last night? I I I went to bed at like eleven o'clock, and and that's normally that's that's pretty normal for me. And then I woke up at six, and I was like, "What happened? I don't know what's going on." But yeah, I feel cheated out of my um my two hour bonus round where I I get a little extra time on the day on on the rest of you guys. Yeah, she usually gets um, up at four a.m. Kids, just so you know. I know. Um. Well, I'm coming to you here again from upstate New York, where I was last time. So let's hope we do not have any more uh, lawnmowers in the background. Uh, if we do, we'll uh, pause. <laughs> Can I apologize to our <laughs> listeners for, for like, there was this crazy swooping noise in one of our podcasts. And I think it was much louder on your end. And you were like, oh. okay, let's wrap up. And I was like, no, let's keep going. And I'm going to go kind of slowly. And I re-listened to that. And I was like, oh, happily. It was right here. I'm like literally looking. I'm two feet from the window where the lawnmower, the riding lawnmower was. So yes, I, I was. I could hear it better than you could. But um, I don't think it's I was be trying to silence today. your voice on this matter, and I'll yeah, never do it again, Nancy. Don't Rommel. silence me, you know, Sarah Heppola, which is I really think. I mean, that should be the sort of uh, sort of the animating idea of this entire episode. A lot of people claiming to be silenced and will not be silenced and forcibly silenced and how dare you not listen to me. Um, it's been it's been a week. It's been a week. Nancy, I have to tell you that I have this sense of impending doom in my body. Oh. It's it's almost like like I've been a little bit shake like I'm actually like lightly shaking right now, which I, I really can't describe it except that I feel like I don't know. I just feel so not good about how things are going. You feel kind of like, um, I've written before, like when you have the hummingbird in your chest, is it that kind of feeling or is it like more full body? It's like the hummingbird is in my limbs. Okay. Um, I don't feel that way. So, um, we can have one of us will be stable and then next time I'll be feeling all hummingbirdy and you can be, uh, the more stable one. Um, I'm, I, I have to say I'm surprised. Um, I listened this morning to a very, very good episode um, of the Fifth Column podcast, bingo, uh, mm-hmm. that they had uh, Damon Root, who's a constitutional scholar and writer, he writes for reason, really nice guy, he actually lives up uh, up near here in uh, upstate New York where I am. And at, whenever one of these like big constitutional issues comes up or something, you know, Supreme Court, he's, he really writes a lot about the Supreme Court too. Um, they have him on to sort of explain what's going on here and, and why it maybe happened. And he, he just gives an incredible rundown of like why Roe v. Wade was, was not you know, was never built on super solid ground. Even, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said that. Um, Why, you know, it is not an enumerated uh, constitutional right. Well, of course, it wasn't within the Constitution when the Constitution was written. But they also talked about something that I had no idea about. And I'm going to get this wrong, and I don't remember exactly what it was. But it used to be the case when, yeah, per usual, um, (laughs) when that country was founded, and when when we maybe when even the Constitution was was written. Um, Oh yeah, this was the interesting idea that it was. It was uh, legal. 
legal. It was, yeah. It was legal because, because it was something that basically was left to the midwives and it was basically legal or maybe not even like an issue of legality and illegality until you had the quickening. Now, the quickening is an interesting concept. The quickening is when you feel the baby move. Now, this is not let me tell you, as someone who did not feel the baby move until five months because we were so crazy busy moving and life was so crazy, it wasn't until I like lay down on the couch in the new house I just moved into that I felt the baby kick. So it could be three months, it could be five months. But that was extremely interesting to know that this this hadn't been an issue. It hadn't been a it hadn't been a religion issue, religious issue. It hadn't been a legal issue in the in the states. And then it started to become one when the medical community started to be regulated and they wanted to take rights away from. You know, other kinds of doctors and midwives, that's when it started to roll over. And of course, you've cited, and you can do it again right here, um, in, um, in, uh, uh, um, You've, be, you've been publicly shamed author John Ronson, his, his podcast, what is it called again? It's called Things Fell Apart. Things Fell Apart, his first mm. episode talking about who in the country actually used to be pro and anti-abortion. It was, it was mm-hmm. not, it was not the hot potato it is now. Um, but the, but everything sort of flip-flopped and it's just been kind of fascinating to, if you, if you get under the hood here, as opposed to just all the incredible emotions That's that right. are running at like it, you, the radiator in your car just exploded. There is just hot gushing radiator fluid going everywhere and people can't, are not going to take the time right this minute to get under the hood. Wow, that's pretty good. That metaphor kind of matched, huh? And and look at why this might have happened. A lot of people are going to say, well, you know, and, and we should get rid of the Supreme Court and all this. And of course, it got packed. But in fact, if you listen to Damon Root, and I'm going to trust him a lot more than I'm going to trust me or the people shouting about whatever side they're on, it's been years, if not decades, in, in, the, in the making. Anyway, um, I find listening to these kinds of things are very stabilizing because mm-hmm. that's you're, you're looking at data, you're looking at facts, you're looking at precedent, you're looking at where we might go from here, as opposed to just letting your emotions of the past few days um, destabilize you. So that would some, we'll obviously have this in the show notes, and um, maybe it will be useful for, for some people that are feeling, you know, uh, uh, put off balance by everything that's happened the past few days. I really feel like one of my one of my jobs is to help people understand how we got here mm-hmm. as opposed to help people feel, like I don't see myself as a like I don't give advice as a general rule I don't I'm not an activist I just sort of want to understand how we got here so I spent a little time this morning and last night trying to figure out if Roe v Wade was kind of constitutionally shaky, which it seems like a lot of people have a, have agreed to that, then why wasn't it codified by law? That was my big question. Why in that 50 years uh, did nobody pass legislation um, that would that would take it into, you know, like let's let's create it a, a more sound foundation for it. And I, and I don't really have an answer to that. Um, but I did find some interesting but haven't the, stuff. Haven't the, haven't the states done that? I mean, haven't the states done that 
on their own passed passed laws about abortion in each no, but state? In that, uh, yeah, the states have done that uh, in reaction to Roe v. Wade. Yeah. But I'm saying, why wasn't there... A federal why law? Why wasn't there a national law? You know, one of the things I, I read about this morning was that when Obama... You know, Roe v. Wade seemed like it was pretty pretty stable until the last 10 years. I mean, you know, I think there was a there was a sense that, OK, it's fraud. It's a it's a wedge issue. People are fired up about it. But the majority of people really wanted to keep Roe v. Wade around. It always had majority support. So I grew up in a world where, you know, there was this sense that it was never going to get repealed. I imagine a lot of other people did as well. You and know, sorry. Well, one of the things I learned was that when Obama was running, he told Planned Parenthood uh, that one of the first things he'd do was to sign into law something called a Freedom of Choice Act, which would make it, uh, you know, would would make abortion legal. And then when he got into office, you know, I I don't know if you remember Obama's first hundred days, but one of the things he was trying to do was pass that health care. It was incredibly fraught. Uh, Abortion became a huge issue around getting it passed. And he just backed off of that. I mean, I I think for I can hardly blame him uh, because you could just see like this is not going to go well. No, and it's also, it's, an, it's you know, it's become, if it didn't used to be a hot potato issue, it certainly has become one in the past 50 years. I think it kind of rears its head up and down depending on where we are in the climate. But, you know, you have, even though I think, you know, I don't know, I think, you know, a majority of the country is pro-legal, safe abortion in the first trimester. They mm-hmm. they are. Like most people are going to agree to that. Of course, there's going to be a pretty sizable chunk, I don't know, 30, 40% that are not going to, but you're going to have the majority on that in that area. The problem hap- happens when you have, you know, very vocal pro-abortion activists pushing, pushing the date. You know, it's like, Nope, it's got to be 20 weeks. Nope, it's got to be 24. It's got to be 28. It's got to be 32. It's got to be 36 weeks. You cannot restrict the right to a woman's abortion at any time. And that is what has been pushed for. And, you know, it's interesting. Again, I was listening again on the fifth column. Michael Moynihan was had the data in front of him. I'll try to find a link for it. In Europe, where they have very, very uh, permissive abortion laws, they're all about 10, 10 to 12 to 14 weeks. That's it. Like yeah. that's after that, it's illegal. And the United right. States seems to not want to do that and seems to be saying, if you do that, you are taking, you're taking away not only a woman's right to choose, or you are taking away her freedom. And I think we've gotten to this point now where we're it's become it's become too extreme for, for many people's tastes. I am not comfortable. I I am pro-choice and I am pro-choice. I am not comfortable with saying we can let people have abortions at 36 weeks. I am not comfortable with that. I mean, there's no part of me that's comfortable with that. I mean, perhaps if the mother was going to die or something like that, sure. But I think we have to, in my opinion, and obviously the opinion of every European country and a lot of people in the States, is that we've got to put some sort of bumpers on here where we can come to a compromise where people in the main do feel okay with this and then maybe you can get your federal law 
but that is not what is it is not what's happening and and beyond that i have to say <coughs> the rhetoric Excuse that me. i hear and i think we're going to touch on this is that it hasn't just been pro choice the articles lately strike me and you can tell me what you think they strike me as anti birth and that's mm-hmm kind of weirdly disturbing. It's like everybody that's writing one of these pieces was born, okay? And it's like you, in order to make your point, in order for for, for what you believe to will be convincing to people and will be the reasons is that we not only have to be pro-choice, we have to be anti-birth. And I'm going to read to you. Go for it. Go for it. Well, before we get into that channel, I just wanted to go back to a couple things before, because I think that's a fascinating conversation that I want to have, but I want to have it a little bit more expansively. I just wanted to say about the European laws, uh, you are correct that most of them are around 10 to 15 weeks. They mostly all have clauses around late term abortion, like if, if, uh, health of the mother issues, you know, which is very reasonable, right? I completely agree with that. And I think that one of the things that happens is that, uh, look, uh, Roe v. Wade set the limit at viability, which was somewhere between 22 and 24 weeks. Public support for abortion really drops off as you get later and later into the second and third trimester. And there has been... I don't know. There's an interesting. Oh, I'm afraid to do this, but like, there's there's been an interesting parallel with with gun laws, um, where it feels like the in the same way that the right is is arguing for some of these these guns that it's just like why are these even legal? But they don't want to give anything because there's a slippery slope. Right, uh, right. A very similar thing was happening with abortion laws. And I think that the late that the, the third trimester, the late term abortion stuff, I just I, I don't think that's. I have always been for a compromise here. And what I would really love to see happen is that we get federal law that reflects what most people want, which is safe and available early abortion, like up to 15 weeks or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think most people that care about this issue could get on board with that. You will have some that won't. You will have some that are saying, you know, abortions up to whenever uh, on demand, not having to, anything to do with the life of the mother or something like that. And you will have people that say, no, you know, conception is life and that's it. And I'm not going to budge. Most people are not are not going to be there. They're going to be, I think, pretty sound. I think, I think your comparison with, um, with um, gun laws saying no, no restrictions whatsoever on my guns is extremely similar and parallel with no, no restrictions on abortion. It's, you know, it's so, it's so interesting and, and people don't want to budge when really most of the country would probably say, yeah, we can, we can budge a little, we can budge a little and, and say, we do need, you know, red flag laws. We do need, um, maybe a waiting period. We do need to check on whether someone, you know, has some really serious mental health issues before we, before we sell them a firearm. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. Um, David French had a fantastic, um, column about this about a month ago. I will find that. And, um, anyway, Sorry, I petered out. Well, <clears throat> I would like to see compromises on both 
of these issues, which feel like the two most fraught issues in America right now, and both being like... they're, They're both so extreme. Sometimes I just feel like, are there just no adults in the room that can compromise on this? Why does it feel like everything is being run by the extremists? And I think this is what gives me this sense of impending doom is that I feel like America as a country is a lot of reasonable people. And yet the politicians or the online discourse is so unreasonable and it's being pushed around like that and pushing us apart from each other. I mean, one of the things that really upsets me, uh, you know, I live in Texas and Texas has, has been, I'm not at all proud of the way that our our governor Greg Abbott put put out this really crazy uh, bounty bill. Uh, what? So explain that because I I heard that alluded to, and this is like, is this to like catch people trying to cross oh, state lines? It was such craziness. I mean, so it basically was trying to skirt the law so that it wouldn't go up to the Supreme Court. But the idea was, you know, if you knew of anybody that was getting an abortion, you could report them. Uh, and there was like a $10,000 bounty. It, it's it's madness. Well, okay. Well, that's, first of all, this is disgusting. Second it's of disgusting. all, it's insanity because there are going to be plenty of people that fake report a completely fake report just to get a bounty. Oh, you know, I know Sarah Hepla. I know that Sarah Hepla. She she said she was going to go cover Johnny Depp trial, but you know what she was really doing <laughs> while she was there? She had, no, I'm not kidding. She had an abortion. And what are you going to do? Then they're going to submit. You got to go to a medical test to prove that you didn't. This isn't. No, this is. It's just like it's just like the cancellation campaigns. You don't actually have to have any goods on anybody in order to destroy their lives. You can just make it up if you feel like it. And if there's money involved, are you insane? This is insane. This is going to be, you're going to have more people fake reporting than real reporting if there's money involved. So I wanted to understand what's happened in Texas since that law came up. And I apologize that I don't really know. I think, I feel like this bounty bill is is hung up somewhere um, <laughs> because I have not heard any reports. There there were early reports of people that were, that were making uh, claims, you know, they were mostly like political acts. Uh, in other words, they, they were people that weren't even in the state that were making claims. Um, do you do you have any idea? So what was what you know at this point, Roe v. Wade had not been overturned. Was Abbott trying to like preemptively look like one of the heroes if it did get overturned? Or does he just actually believe that if you have an abortion, you are you are not only guilty of whatever they're going to accuse you of being guilty of, if it's, you know, murder or whatever, but that it is so important that we are going to reward the good citizens with money. I mean, what's the logic? I think Abbott has his eyes on the White House, and I think some very crafty lawyer figured out a way to get around the law, and they went with that. And, you know, I, I, I don't, 
I don't pretend to know what these people's personal politics are, but I think that that Abbott in particular is a is, you know, an incredible opportunist here. So one of the things that I wanted to find out was how this is a, has affected abortion in Texas. When it first was passed, we heard reports that 50 percent of abortion. And when was abo- this? When was this, Sarah? Tw- when did it pass? 2021. Okay. September 2021, I believe. And we initially heard reports that 50%, that, that abortion had been cut by 50%. But I looked at a what? piece in the New York Times called The Upshot, which said that actually it had only dipped by about 10%. I mean, so one of the things that I was fascinated by is that this really draconian law has been passed in Texas, and yet I live here and I don't hear much about it. Now, granted, <clears throat> I'm out of, I've aged out of the range where this would be a particular like yep, yep. talking point. But at the same time, this is something I, I would have thought I would have heard more about. And so one of the things that this article said is that, in fact, abortions have only dipped by about 10 percent. And one of the the reasons is that there is just this really high increase in women going across the state, the state lines to mostly New Mexico, although and. Oklahoma, it was uh, legal until recently that that this new thing is going to trigger a a law in Oklahoma to make it illegal. Um, But New Mexico and Colorado had uh, become sort of havens and the increase in online abortion. Yeah. You know, you can get medals online. And now this is technically illegal. However, it's very hard to track. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one I, of the things that will be interesting is, I'm sorry, <clears throat> by the way, it is so hot in Texas that I have stopped smoking as much. Wow. My smoking is way down. Because your lungs are just like too Sarah. I can't hot do it. to smoke. And so wow. my lungs are trying to heal themselves right now. <laughs> They're okay, like, that's all right. We're, we're going to keep coughing up because you are not assaulting us with your disgusting smoke right now. So uh, that's good news and bad news. Can bad I, news can is I'm gonna struggling break in for, a lot with, with, uh, I'm gonna with break clearing in for my throat. A, a, a two-minute story. When I was 13, of course I was already, or maybe I was 14, I was already smoking, of course. Newports, of course. And um, I, uh, I developed a tumor in my leg, my left shin. It, it was benign. It turned out to be nothing, but they kept me in the hospital for like eight days. And while I was there, this extremely handsome young, young doctor, or I don't know, he, he, he said, I'm going to, I know that you smoke. I'm going to have you uh, inhale. It was like a misty inhalation thing that I did for 10 minutes. He's like, just, let's just sit here and you just inhale deeply for 10 minutes. He took it out. And he's like, now spit. And this glob of stuff came out of my lungs that was like the size of a fist. Oh, that's I mean, disgusting. I was 14 and cute, but anyway, it was, it's No, like, I'm not saying you weren't sexy when you no, did it. Oh no, it, it was my sexy glob, Sarah. But um, the thing is that you actually, what you're saying is actually true. Your lungs, like if you could vaporize yourself a little with like mist or something, your, your lungs would be like, dude, here I come. Get this out of here. Anyway. And did you It'll hear that? interesting after- to see if my stupid smoking habit outlasts the summer. Because it is miserably hot here. It's like a hundred and something. It's disgusting. Do you have swamp coolers? I'm sorry, what? 
Oh my God, I thought that was, I learned that from my ex who's from Oklahoma, Swamp Cooler. It's like a, it's like a fan, but you put cold water in front of it. And it makes oh it- yeah. I need to get one of those out on my smoking porch. Okay. Anyway, I'm not prepared for this. The last couple summers have been mild. Anyway, um, the, the, you know, aidaccess.org and plancpills.org are two of these places that you can buy online. Um, What's the second pills. one called? PlanCPills.org. Great. And, uh, you know, it's it's technically illegal, but it's very, very hard to track. And so one of the the questions becomes, is that going to be the focus? I just, I, I, I have some faith that this is, I don't know why, that this is going to even itself out either with, with, with federal legislation or something. But in the meantime, there's going to be this rocky interim period where these states are, you know, punishing women who are trying to skirt around the law and to what extent a state like Texas is going to crack down on these women. Um, I, I just don't know. I've certainly, you know, one of the things I heard or saw online was, you know, women saying uh, things like delete your period trackers because oh. this is going to be a way that the state can track whether or not you're pregnant. It's so funny. It's like a period tracker. We used, to, I mean, I, I, I understand everybody like even uses an app now to brush their teeth, but you know, yeah, right, it, like, right. You kind of people kind of know, like we, I, I know. Well, when you're getting your period, like you get it around the 27th, could be a day or two before, maybe you're saying, but you know, it's it's pretty regular. I, I'm wondering, and and I'm kind of hoping this actually. I, I can't remember, and if I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry uh, about. Six weeks ago, uh, when the news was first leaked uh, that they might overturn Roe v. Wade, New York Magazine had a cover story um, about like how to get an abortion, and it was extremely exhaustive. I think I actually just talked to you about this. I don't think we talked about it on the podcast. And, um, no, we didn't. They had, I think, about um, I, I might botch it right now. Fourteen articles. Really, I mean, we're talking like forty pages of the magazine. Uh, Fourteen different pieces about like where to get an abortion, how to access this, how to get morning after pills, what states were doing what, what you could do, what you couldn't. It was like really, really exhausted. But there was not one article about how to get birth control. And that, that pissed me off. And it pissed me off because I'm so, so, so pro-birth control. And if you don't want to have a baby, you can get birth control and you can get it for free. There's, I used to get it for free from Planned Parenthood. There are plenty of places you can get it for free. And if you can't get it in your state, you can get it online for free. And what I'm hoping now is going to happen, and I'm going to say also as a journalist, or an editor, if I had been an editor of New York Magazine, I would have said, we want to have one piece here about this because you know what? You know, either getting free or, or paid birth control or, you know, a little a little, a little tube with the released in your arm or, or pills or whatever is going to save you a lot of trouble and money and heartache and problems in the future. And that's something that I am really, really in support of. And let's try to get people 
both educated about birth control and let's try to get it in their hands. And I think what hopefully is going to happen right now is that not only are we going to, maybe they're going to be able to get morning after pills, um, or I don't know if an abortion pill is the same thing as a morning after pill. I, I don't know. But um, but we're going oh, no, to... no, no. Well, there's plan B, which is the morning after pill. Okay. And then there's an abortion pill, which oh, is, plan C. Is, is different. Is yeah. Abor- what is it called? A, an abortificant or something like that? Sorry, I'm turning on a fan. Abortifacent. Sorry. My, hold on. My, my, ah. Nancy's missing from my screen. Somebody has kidnapped Nancy. It's sorry. They I had to turn off the- Nancy and she, this is a report. She's back. She was back. not kidnapped. I that felt like was, it was 30 years. How long was that it? That was fake news. Um, you were gone. Um, but let's, let's, like, I would put my efforts and may well put my efforts into making sure that people do understand how they can get birth control because birth control usually works. It does not always work. Of course, we know that. Um, but it usually works. And then we can, you know, maybe we can ease back, uh, which I think would be delightful. I mean, who who wouldn't be in favor of fewer legal abortions? You know, I don't I don't know how it's possible to be super pro-abortion. You can absolutely be pro-choice. But, you know, it's a difficult thing. It's difficult on the body. It can have varying degrees of difficulty on your your psyche. So let's get people birth control. I'm super pro this. And, and actually, I'm, I think I would actually look into that and see how I can be useful there. Yeah, I think that you should, that should become your advocacy, is sharing the news of contraception. Why not? It is really radical. Why not? I mean, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, the pill, the pill um, was introduced in 1960, but it wasn't available for single, you know, it was originally introduced for married women, uh, because they didn't want, they didn't want, uh, women to become sexually promiscuous. Oh, when my mom went to go get birth control, like a couple weeks before my dad got married, and of course they were already sexually active, but she went to go get birth control. She's Catholic. So was my dad went to a Catholic doctor and he's like, sure, come back, um, come to, come back the day before your wedding. Right. Right, right. I mean, it's it's funny because the pill becomes so um, so philosophically aligned with with single women and single life, but it's introduced as a way for married couples. You know, because the idea is you shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage anyway, young lady. Family planning—that's what they call it. Family planning. Family planning. And so it becomes legal for single women in '72, which is the year before Roe v. Wade. And so I just did a lot of thinking about the changes over the last 50 years, one of the things that those two things together did, I I just, I, I know I've said this before, but I don't think we give enough credit to how the pill transformed the experience of being a young woman. I'm sure it did. I mean, I'm, I'm I think it's one of the major pivot points of the 20th century. And one of the things it does is to give us control over something that had been uncontrollable. The idea that you could control your pregnancy uh, through through mechanical means, by the way, I mean, like chemical means, I should say. I'm I'm sure there was always things like, like back in the day, you would do uh, the rhythm method, yeah, I, that's how Tava. Well, anyway, go ahead. Oh, oh, oh! Sounds <laughs> no, like no, a good no. story. I, okay, no, I was on the pill. I went off the pill. We wanted to have a baby. Like we wanted to have a baby, and I was like, but maybe, like, I felt 
I don't know why. I felt like I'd been taking the pill for like, I don't know, five or six years. I was like, let me let let me get it out of my system before I conceive. So let's just do the rhythm method for a month or two. It worked for the first month and it didn't work the second month, but which fine. I wanted to have a baby, but I, yeah, it's, it's not surefire. Let's put it, it's not that, put it that way. You know, I've just read stories over the years about how the pill sort of, it, it is, it is such a, like radical shift in the culture that in some ways, one of the things it does is to distance women from the mandates of their own body. Um, a lot of women, like I was very lazy for many years about tracking my periods because I was on the pill. So I knew yeah, when it was going to come because you would be on, on different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the different colors. Like, if you don't know how it works, like, there's there's certain different color pills on the on the days when you're going to get your period. And, you know, one of the things we found was that a lot of women had some uh, unrealistic ideas about when they could get pregnant. You know, the idea that you could control your pregnancy, in other words, extends to the idea that you can control it even past, you know, what had always been considered lines for fertility. So women are getting off the pill around 35 and saying like, all right, I'm ready to get pregnant. And that's when you see the growth of IVF because in fact their bodies are like, uh, no, we've been shutting down for about, uh, five years now. And this is going to be a lot harder. Um, so I just was thinking about the ways that we have come to take for granted the ways that we can control things that for earlier generations, would not have seemed to be in our control, do you right? Think because that, we have the technological means. Do you think that, you know, it's 1972, you've got a generation of women um, that can now take control. They can take control of their sexuality. They can take control, basically, of when they have a child. They are, like, in control. I wonder if it became, and now we have, obviously, many more kinds of birth control that are, you know, time-released. You can put a little whatever those little things are in your arms and for six months it'll provide control. Right. Do you think that people, I mean, I think it's probably obvious that people have started to take this to grant. They've taken for granted that you can get birth control and not get pregnant. And then when you do get pregnant, whether it's because you were careless or because there was an accident, um, it almost feels like, how can I say this? It's like, well, we need to have control over this too. We need to have control over not only not getting pregnant, we need to have control over terminating a pregnancy. Of course, I guess this is obvious. That's what it is. But it's almost like, and you need to sign on for that too. It's like you signed on for us to have freedom with birth control. Now you got to sign on for the next thing. And I guess some people are like, I'm just not comfortable with that next part. Right. Right. Well, there is a philosophical idea that in order for women to be equal participants in society, they need to have control over their reproductive life. You know, and I think this mm-hmm. is a, a fa- this is really true because, uh, look, nature is all about double standards. Like women have <laughs> the burden of childbirth, something that doesn't. And the beauty. Uh, Sorry. Thank you. I mean, I I really, I I really, I don't want to ever lose sight of that. No, I know you don't. I know you don't. And uh, 
you know, I think one of the things you might be noticing in the stories that are coming out now is that there is a unique focus on the burden aspect. There is. I'm going to just, uh, I'm going to tell a little story I was thinking about today when I was making some notes. So you're talking about, you know, there hasn't really been that much pushback or threat to Roe v. Wade, you know, since it passed 50 years ago. But, you know, these things do flare up. They do spike, whether it's because we've got a new president that people feel might put it in jeopardy or a new person on the court. And I remember in 1989, I don't remember what was the catalyst but people did feel that Roe v. Wade was under threat. And I remember this very distinctly because there was a rally in Studio City, a pro-life rally that a lot of friends of mine were going on. It was probably like August or September 1989. And they asked me to come along. And I was happy to do so, uh, to be you know, pro-choice. And they put me right out in front where the TV cameras were and the newspapers taking pictures because I was eight months pregnant. At that time... Oh. At that time, I was still a very welcome member of that movement. It was still like, yeah, we're totally pro-choice. And look, so is this gal who's having a baby, and yay, she's here too. I don't feel that that is the case anymore. I think it has gone, at least the pieces I've been reading this week, and, and you have too, you've sent me one or two. It has become somewhat anti-birth. It's become the point there is no more. I mean, occasionally there'll be like a little nod to like, yeah, yeah. And some people like having babies and that's fine. But for the most part, and and I'll read you the little thing I sent you yesterday in response to your article that you sent me, which was the one in, um, New York magazine called, this is not an abortion. And where was it? No, it wasn't that one, actually. Maybe it was. Yes, it was. There was a line in there that said, the fetus itself is more than a pawn in a political game. It's a punishment that a person must bear, no matter the cost. A person must bear, no matter the cost. This is all centered on the woman. The fetus will never be anything but a punishment and a burden. I... I think this person is seeing things in an extremely limited way. And I am totally happy for this person to not have children. If she doesn't want children, absolutely. I have plenty of friends that never wanted kids and they didn't. However, they did not like go on record and and write things in New York Magazine saying, this fetus will always and only be a punishment and a burden. That is someone that has decided that they're going to blot out, you know, nine-tenths of the world, because I'm here to tell you, and many, many other people will tell you, that the fetus, there could be moments when you're feeling kind of crabby, or you feel shitty, or you get the farts when you're pregnant, or you're vomiting, and there will be times, and Caitlin Flanagan wrote very beautifully about this recently, we talked about the Popsicle article, where you're at home with toddlers, and you're like, okay, I if I, if I don't get out of this house right now, I'm going to lose it, but mostly... There is joy, and as I think I've I've, I've said here, uh, it opens doors that you would not know about. Now she doesn't know about it, and that's fine. But to to state this because you think it's going to strengthen your point about abortion is is um I'm sorry, it's wrong. I don't mean just morally wrong. I mean it's just wrong, like mathematically wrong, um, for the vast majority of people. And I think that's where we're finding each other. People are like, I'm going to prove my point by going. I'm going to play the string 
all the way out to the end. And um, that's not that's not winning people to your side. Well, one of the things uh, that makes me think about is the extent to which we have gained control over our own destinies in a way that is unique. I mean, you know, the idea that we control nature, not the other way around, <clears throat> is an idea that is, I, I, I think, fairly unreflected in society. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm getting into dangerous waters by thinking this way, but I mean, it makes me think a little bit about some of the, um, it's interesting that we're having this, the trans argument around puberty blockers and whether or not you can control basically the sex or the gender that you have. I mean, there's, there's an extension, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there's an extension of this idea of, well, I was born in this body, but I don't want to be born in this body. I want to be born in this other body. Um, and we and are having these very fraught arguments over to what extent you are allowed and technology will allow you to, to do that. Well, that, you know, of course, the, the, the word there is, is technology and, and, and medicalization. Um, we yes. read a couple of pieces this week, especially Kat Rosenfield's piece, where she um, talked about, you know, the, the medical ramifications of um, a lot of these operations. Um, and she cited, um, she, I can't remember, if, did we talk about this last time and we're repeating no. ourselves? Um, okay, she, she linked to a few um, people that have medically transitioned and um, some, some true, true horror stories. And of course, there's going to be horror stories in every case. I mean, you could have a kidney transplant like my mother did and it's delightful and you can have them and they're terrible. However, um, we are in the medical infancy of, um, of, of transitioning, and inevitably, there are going to be horror stories. Uh, maybe there'll always be horror stories, but the issue right now seems to be that people feel that they're being guinea-pigged on, and when, you know, the younger and younger we allow people to make these decisions, whether they're 14 or 16, we, I told you I watched, um, I watched that, um, documentary, um, What is a Woman by Matt Walsh, who's sort of a professional provocateur and, and pretty right wing. And I was surprised um, that he's kind of funny, which is, you know, pleasant. It was very well produced. It looked it looked good. You know, he's definitely being, bringing his 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 point on the tip of a spear and, and he's obnoxious too. And he's got this last little scene, which is just so freaking obnoxious. However, mm -hmm. there's also some interesting information in there um, when you're speaking to people on both sides of the issue and how they can and cannot um, support their positions. And, and I, I actually thought it was worth watching whether you think he's a horse's ass or not. Um, and we, we are at a point now where there are many people ready to reify and support the transition of young people, but we are definitely not at the point, it doesn't appear to be, where we have the technology and the medical acumen to do it properly, if ever. I mean, maybe we will live in Westworld at some point, and, or, you know, you will be able to just literally, like, take a pill or snap a finger and, and people become a different gender and maybe they can switch back too with a snap of a finger. You know, you could just try it on. We are not there now. We are at a point where the surgeries are unbelievably invasive. And, um, and I got to tell you, at least for this one, uh, this one um, link within Kat's piece, uh, uh, devastating. And so what is happening now? And what, is, what do I predict will happen? I'm not the only one predicting it. We are going to see some hella lawsuits 
down the road because these people were 14 or 16 and were supported by parents either who felt they had no control to do anything else or by a community that was very, very pro-transitioning. And they go and do it when they're like 16 or 18 or even in the uh, Matt Walsh film, someone was like 42 uh, when she did it. And she's, she, she, she's, like, she's like, if they were able to get me at 42, imagine what they're going to be able to do to your 16-year-old. And it was devastating. I, I can't, I'm not actually going to talk <clears throat> about the physical things because they're so, they're so horrific. You just really have to read it for yourself and we'll put a link here. Um, But to get back to what you're saying, like how much can we control nature? That's, you know, you ever try to pull up blackberry bushes? They come back. (laughs) Well, (laughs) when, when you talk about the idea that there's a, there's a generation that, that feels like they might be guinea pigs. I mean, look, that's, the case for anybody that stands at the beginning of one of these medical advancements. True. You true. can go back and find women that like I, I'm I'm having to go back into my into my like mental archives when I was researching something. But I remember a cover story on I want to say Time magazine from the 90s, where it was a generation of women who had gone on the pill. They had come out of that into their 30s thinking that they would get pregnant only to realize they weren't able to. And they said, hey, we we were guinea pigs. We didn't, nobody told us this was going to happen. I I can't remember. Gloria Steinem said something like, we didn't tell you because we didn't know. (laughs) Like, I mean, just just to be honest, nobody could see into the future and, and see that this is what was going to happen. You know, this is certainly um, the trans movement, not philosophically maybe, but uh, but medically has a lot in common with the plastic surgery uh, boom of the, you know, breast implants get introduced in the 60s and then they really explode in popularity in the 80s. And by the 90s, we're seeing these giant lawsuits because women's uh, breast implants are exploding inside of them. And I'm sure you sign, you know, certain things, but at the time it's important to you. You know, we've all done incredibly stupid things too. It's like, well, I'm, I think I should, you know, take this hit of bladder acid when I'm 14 years old because it mean I didn't sign a piece of paper. But, you know, you do things and you, you sign things away because at the time you don't, you, you, you want to do it so very much. And then, um, you know, it comes down the pike that you... It, it wasn't sound. It wasn't safe. What are you going to do? There's nothing that these these women can do with the breast implants, and there's nothing. But you know, my mom is a kidney recipient. She has to take anti-rejection medicine every single day, but it doesn't really affect her that much. You know, it just makes her not reject her kidney. If you are having to take hormone blockers every single day for the rest of your life, uh, one thing that this person, and again in this Matt Walsh film, was saying, he's like, she's like, my life is going to be shorter. There's absolutely no way it's not going to be. Even like when you're on the pill, they don't want you to be on the pill for 30 years or on um, on hormones for like uh, menopause for like 30 <clears throat> years. It, it's right. not it's not a good idea. But you have no choice if you want if you are are born male and you want to live your life as a female and you've done whatever medically surgically and then you want to keep it. You have to be on these hormones or you're gonna like you're gonna get a beard or you're gonna get whatever it is other kind of male thing. This is rough and I we haven't been here. When have we been here? We haven't been no. here. No. Well, with each one of these advancements comes the profound ability to shape your own destiny in ways that earlier generations did not have. And with that comes unforeseen consequences and risks. And we are barreling into the future with each one of these things. 
Into an unknown future, I should say. And I think that, I mean, you know, I think that for when grownups do make these decisions, um, you know, well, caveat emptor, right? Right. And right. some people are, are mentally unsound. And I, I, I actually don't think I grew a brain until I was 25. But okay, that's just me. Um, but we've got the issue of trans children. And we've got, you know, very, very pro-trans activists saying you got to hit them when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You got to hit them before puberty or else they're going to be doomed to the sex that they were born with. And then you're like, well, but what else are we potentially dooming them with when we're when we're going to allow these things to happen? I I truly I I have a sense, like my little spidey sense says that with um people that have been transitioning for the past 10 years, maybe started, I don't know when really started, more on mass 2012, 2013, something like that. Now mm -hmm, they're gonna be running into issues and maybe being old enough to understand that, you know. Maybe things are going wrong physically. I don't know. I hope not. Obviously, I hope not. Oh, my God. I don't want to be, like, proved right. I mean, this is a horror show. Um, but I think the even the small number of really horrific uh, uh, medical situations, like when you've, uh, when you've removed a penis and then what happens to this, this poor gal, it's just, it's, it's unspeakable. Um, you know, I'm sure that people are going to accuse her of being fake. Oh, that's a plant. That's not a real person that that happened to. Well, it is. And these stories, I mean, it, 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 it's convenient to, to sweep them under the rug to get your message out there. But I think it's going to have an impact. And I think also, we, we don't have to get to it yet, but we had the, um, we had the, uh, the Leah Thomas verdict um, um, come down against the swimmer, uh, Leah Thomas. Mm -hmm. I, I think we might be seeing, I'm not going to say a dog leg in trans issues because that's not what I think is a, is a smart thing, but I think it's going to put a little pause on the, um, sort of fast train that, you know, ratifying and okaying every single thing that trans activists were in favor of. I think it's going to put a little pause. Um, I don't know if the activists will get any less quiet, but I think people are at a point where it's like, hmm, you know, this, this gives me pause. This particular thing, like letting, you know, people that were born male and went through male puberty compete as female athletes at 20, it's giving me a little pause. Or the, you know, the, the, the really horrific medical ramifications of, of trans uh, surgery. It's giving me a little pause. And maybe my hope would be that we can just do things better. You know, we did bad surgeries on breasts. Let's do better surgery on breasts. We did bad, you know, trans surgeries. Let's do better ones. So that, that's my hope and better policies. I mean, I think one of the things that's so frustrating about this moment is that we don't know where we're headed, right? That there is this, this desire, this desperate desire for certainty when in fact the only kind of... Uh, certainty about life is that it's uncertain, right? So this is a, a problem that we're having. I, I wanted to bring it back to abortion for a moment. Uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post that I found really profound and fascinating. Oh. And we've dogged okay. a little bit on the Washington Post lately. And so I want to give them credit for writing a story that I thought was incredibly emotionally complex. Um, so balanced. Did you so, get a chance to look at this? I did. I did. I did. I read it last night. 
I, I, okay, first so of all, I wondered if my friend um, or a colleague of mine, Eli, Eli Saslow, who lives in Portland, who I knew from Portland, he writes the most incredible long form for the for the Post, but it wasn't him. But um, okay. anyway, it was, it was a wonderful piece. Wonderful. Yeah. Piece. So, so this is a writer named Carolyn Kurt Kitchener, Caroline or Carolyn uh, Kitchener, and she writes a story uh, that came out just a few days before Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's titled This Texas Teen Wanted an Abortion. She Now Has Twins. This is about a <clears throat> a teenager in poverty who got pregnant with, with her boyfriend just like the day or a few days before this Texas ban goes into effect. Two days. Two, well, two days. Okay. She she realized she was pregnant. She didn't get pregnant That's two right. days before. She realized Thank she you. was pregnant. Yeah. She realized she was pregnant. And... She has all sorts of extenuating circumstances that don't set her up great no, for no, life. I mean, no. her her father is uh, has a cocaine problem, and there's poverty in the family. And her mother at first wants her to get an abortion, but then they find out it's twins, and she decides to have this baby. I mean, decide is is I'm using that verb lightly, right? Because she didn't really have the uh, the means to necessarily travel to Colorado. Um, one of but the it's also the know. case that she wound up at that clinic that was willing on the fly to give her a sonogram. And it turns out it's not just like a Planned Parenthood. It's a place where they are going to do everything they can to convince, coerce, and scare you into having this ch- these children. That's right? right. Am I, is that correct? Okay. That's right. So Yeah. And so she ends up having the twin, the babies. And, you know, it's so one of the things that I liked the moral courage of this piece was that it treated the complexity of, you know, like this young woman is not set up for success. She had all sorts of dreams for her life, plans for her life that are probably not going to come true. You start to see the vectors of, of kind of a sustained poverty that's going to be very difficult at the same time. Now we have twins. Now we have people. And it's very, very difficult to now, you you can't just say, oh, well, this is just a fetus. This is just a clump of, no, this is two people. And she's saying like, I can't imagine my life without these, these babies. And I, I just, again, this has always been like, I'm such a champion of of human complexity is that I think we're lying to ourselves when we say that, you know, oh, well, if I'd had a kid, it would have been the worst thing that ever happened to me. You have no idea. None. You don't. It's sort of when I was with my ex, um, he had a six-year-old and I was basically stepmother to this child. And I, I don't know if we would say something and he's like, I know you love him, but you don't actually know what it's like to be a parent. I was like, okay. And, you know, he was right, of course. Um, but that's true. You know, when you're when you're talking about a fetus, it's this completely conceptual, no pun intended, <laughs> um, this idea that you don't have any attachment to. You've made it an object. Um, it's a glob. Um, and uh, it doesn't mean anything. And that's fine. You, you can feel that way about it. But that's not what the fetus is becoming. And maybe people are... Um, Maybe like the woman that I was quoting from her New York Magazine article, like a child will never, a fetus will never be anything but a burden. Maybe she's afraid um, of what it would actually be like to love. 
to that extent, to have to care for something to that extent. Because yes, caring for, for a child is a responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility. Is it hard? Sometimes. Is it hard for this young woman in the in the Washington Post? Yes, it's it is really hard. I mean, she's 18 years old. Her father's a former cocaine addict. Her mother is very very volatile and not very nice. Um, you know, she's got I gotta say she's got a somewhat heroic 18 year old boyfriend, uh, who yeah. you know who is very very kind with her and obviously he's a father and but he's also honest with her. Um, after the babies are born, he's like I I'm. I'm really having a hard time. I'm struggling. But then he does, you know, he he goes off and joins the service so that they can have, you know, medical insurance and he can care for these children. And who knows what will happen to these this marriage? Well, who knows you know, 50% what will happen? 50% of marriages fail and they're 18 years old. But she does very categorically say, I, I don't, I can't imagine not having these babies now. I, because- I found myself very moved by all the people in this story. It felt like a very American story. Oh, yes. In the sense... And, and and again, I don't want to minimize the challenges that they may face, but but I found their their story noble and fascinating, and not at all a nightmare. I mean, maybe that's that's um, facile for me. You know, it's an expression of my privilege no. to, but but I found it I found it to be like, in other words, like very much a life worth living, like very much like a challenge worth taking. And I'm very fascinated to see, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, as we will hear from more of these mothers that did not get an abortion in places like Texas and Oklahoma and uh, North Dakota and Idaho, you know, what will their stories be about the you know, I have a story of a, of, you know, I, I told the story of my abortion in an earlier episode. And I, I mentioned that I, I will always live with this sort of shadow self, mm-hmm. you know, that, that 16 years ago, I made a decision that did change my life. And I will never know what that was. And there will be a, a something in the opposite direction for these I would think mostly young women that are going to end up having children and will look back and say, you know, I probably would have gotten an abortion. And what will they make of their lives? Now, it's possible that it's just not you just it's too hard to speak honestly, like say they do regret it. Right. I'm sure that there are a lot of mothers that do regret their pregnancy. I think it's one of the greatest taboos there is. Even ones that wanted babies, you know, they regret having the children. So sure, of course, that's that's possible. And also that it's not a constant feeling, right? Like that there are stabs of regret. There's moments where you're like, why did I ever do this? And then it recedes into something like, Okay, on balance, I'm glad this happened, which is like how I would explain my life, which is that I have these stabs of regret around not having had children. And then on balance, I feel pretty happy with where my life is and it feels okay. I have a question for you. Um, Sure. How many people that you can think of, kind of like off the bat, how many people do you know whose mothers left? when they were young children and just sort of like really didn't, didn't come back. Oh, and didn't come back. Mm-hmm. I don't know many. You know what? I do. You do. I'm, I mean, thinking about it now, I, I do. I can think of four or five 
including my late ex. His mother left when he was about three months old, and he saw her twice more in his entire life. I met her <gasps> once when, when Tava was a baby. Oh, I do um, know somebody. I just thought of him. Yeah, I know people similar who similar story. Were very young. Uh, they were very young children, and, and the mothers leave. Um, you know, I I I know people who, when the going gets tough, they're like, you know, this is not this is not what I want. Um, yeah, well, that you know, it, it that's pretty much like anything. You know, uh, your job, uh, yourself, whatever. Sometimes you don't want to be there, but you know, on balance. I think for most people, um, you create so much glue, that good glue, as I call it, um, with your child. And it's, it's, you can't, I mean, they're, they're you know, I would, I, I would roll over burning glass for my daughter. You know, this is, this is like the, the biggest thing in the world. But yes, um, I am very, I, I'm very fascinated to hear what you're talking about, the stories as we move forward, as the lo- yeah. laws change. But the ones I want to hear are the complex ones, just like this one in the Washington Post. I am, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in hearing the woman that says, I didn't know if I wanted kids, but they're a gift from God and everything's beautiful and daisies all the time. Or the person that's like, I am so beleaguered. And if I had my rights, I was like, I want to hear the complex stories. Man, I want to root for this 18 year old. Okay. I want to root for her that it's hard, but it's doable. And, and then that kind of like hard rot, it's like, you know, the, 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 the coffee beans, my husband was a coffee roaster that are the sweetest Mm. and the best are the ones that have a hard time growing, right? Or wine. They do this, this viticulture where they don't actually water it. It's like, you got to grow. And these grapes that grow are incredible because you, you know, you, you know, success through adversity. I'm not wishing adversity, oh my God, on this 18 year old, but the fact of the matter is she's got it. So let's hear these stories. Um, these complex stories, um, as opposed to making it, as opposed to living on the margins in order that people can, you know, get their political point proved or think they're proving it or, or, or whatever it is. And, and I, I don't think, I mean, I, I can absolutely understand how there are people joyously celebrating um, the defeat of Roe v. Wade. I, I don't, I, I think everybody should be super I think they should be quiet about it because it's it's a it's a hard day. It's a hard time, I think, for a lot of people. Just as I'm sure, in 1972, it was a hard time for people that were pro or pro life. I'm sure it was yeah. very hard. You know what I'm thinking about for some reason? Uh, did you ever see that RBG documentary? No, I have not. Okay. So there was a documentary about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. I I, I remember really liking it, but I found myself unexpectedly moved by the fact that she had a child while she was in, I believe, law school. Mm -hmm. And there were these pictures of her playing with her little girl. I want to say it's a little girl. I hope I'm getting the, the facts right here. When she would come home and I... And, and I just thought, I didn't know anybody in college that had a child. Like I do actually, I did know one woman that got pregnant and then she dropped out. Um, and there was always this sense of like, oh my God, what happened to her? Like, that was a terrible thing. Oh my God, she got pregnant. Like I I had a girl, my freshman class like that too. Um, but I don't know. If it's it just interesting to me that, you know, she is one of the first female uh, people to enroll in, I believe, Harvard Law School. It could be Yale Law School. Again, it's just been too long for me. Um, 
you know, and so something like pregnancy would have just gone along with like the times, you know, you get pregnant in your early 20s and there you are, you're just going to have your baby. And I don't mean to say that this is um, so crazy. I'm sorry, so easy because uh, she had a very supportive husband. And um, but but it made me wonder why colleges and grad schools and stuff weren't more welcoming to young mothers and pregnant mothers in accepting that instead of going the opposite direction, which is push off your your pregnancy until you're done with all that. Oh, I have got, I have so much to say about this. I, you know, you, people are always like, well, once I get this, well, once I get this degree, well, once we buy the house, well, once I have a hundred thousand dollars, first of all, there's no right time. You do it other when you want her in house. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm going to date myself and there are going to be listeners who don't know who Carol King is, but I can assure you, you know, her songs. Um, she, I think was, I'm going to get maybe her age a little wrong. I think she was 21, 20 or 21 when she went into a music studio in, uh, in uh, New York City, this is probably early 60s, to record a song. She had her two little boys with her. I, I'm sure I, I botched some of these, uh, maybe the sexes or the dates. But she was very young. She had these children. And, at, at, you know, in certain cultures, and I can say this having been around this culture a lot with, with uh, Native folks, as opposed to sort of like my upper middle class white culture that I grew in, we're like, everything's kind of all mixed up. The kids are here. You're doing this. Somebody's watching this. You're doing it. It's not like this big giant division and we're going to wait till everything's perfect to have it. Because let me tell you, it's never going to be perfect. And also, and this is, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but when like you have your kids younger, you fit them into your life more than trying to fit them into your life. How do I say No, you all kind of make the life together as opposed right. to trying to fit them into your life. Like a Carol <gasps> King walking in with the two babies. They just did it. She became a worldwide superstar. You know, you, you did it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She had a kid. She came home from law school. She had a kid. Like that's actually kind of a beautiful life. Don't you think? Well, I think that's what was so moving to me. And I, you know, I don't know the truth of what it was to be a mother for her. I have no idea. I just saw pictures, which are never the truth of anything. But like what I saw in that moment was a vision of young motherhood that was so different than the one that had been so ingrained in me, which is that it's a mistake. You're going to screw up your life. Don't do it. Well, I, you know, I, I you know, obviously I disagree. And I, you know, I was in my 20s. I have a friend right now who's 25 that is having a baby. You know, everybody has to make their choices for themselves. But there really is nothing wrong. I mean, and as you said, I mean, our bodies are made for this. You get your period at 12, 13, whatever it is. You, you, you can have babies into your early 40s. But, you know, there's a large swath of time in there when you're in your 20s where your body's like, you know, I got pregnant. He basically looked across the room at me and I got pregnant. Like, right. you know. Your body's ready for it. And it, it doesn't mean that our culture is. We may have moved on. We may have said we need graduate school or whatever. We need college. Well, you know, okay, but, you know, the body's ready. And we started this conversation. You you said, like, how much can we defeat biology? Well, you can't. Not We're not medically there yet where we're going to say, you know, we're going to put a pause on menses. We're going to start it at, you know, 36 because we feel that people will be ready at that point. And I would even wager that actually... You start to become less ready because you've got all your own habits and your own things. And it's like, wait a minute, I like to play squash on Tuesdays and now I got this baby and what am I going to do? And also, if you have your first baby, we, I was with some friends yesterday, we have got it. He's like 60. He's got a one-year-old. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to wager that running after a one-year-old when you're 60 is different than running after a one-year-old when you're 26. I'm just, 
hey, it could be a crazy opinion of mine, but. Well, it's one of these these things where the the moment when you have the most wisdom to share, which is that you're older, you have a lot of life experience, maybe you're a lot calmer, your body is moving in the other direction, right? So you're going to lose on one of these ends. A lot of these young parents, you know, they don't necessarily have the emotional maturity. I think one of the things we've tried to do in society is push it to where, <clears throat> excuse me, you're finding the perfect balance, right? And and you've, you've got the maximum amount of emotional maturity and financial s- stability at the same time that you have uh, physical stamina. And, and that's a really tricky needle to thread. I mean, you know, I am among one of the, the many women that, that waited too far on that one. You know, it was interesting when I was wading into the world of IVF and fertility treatments, which, by the way, I mean, I, I saw some, some theorizing that uh, these abortion laws are going to to change how we treat IVF because, you know, the, the question is, when does life begin? And there are certain evangelical subsets that, that believe that the, um, the fetuses that you create through IVF are also, uh, Yes, it's life. lives, you yes. know, and so within like I have like within the evangelical community or the Christian community, it's a very taboo thing to have disposed of those, you know, because you have a certain amount. Right. Uh, right. When you, anyway. Anyway, that's a whole fascinating other thing. But, um, you know, we are pushing and pushing how far you can go when. In, in order to have a child, like I met with this fertility doctor in New York at the time, I think the oldest you could be was 50 to get Im- implanted with uh, mm-hmm. a uterus. But uh, implanted with a uterus, Sarah. I was like, well. Uh, no, with an embryo. <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway, um, but, there, you know, that's going to keep going higher and higher. Um, he told me that eventually they'd they'd have it so that men could reproduce together and women could reproduce together. In other words, you could have two eggs and you wouldn't need sperm and you could have just sperm and you wouldn't need, I don't know how he worked this out in his head, but he was telling me this was not that far off because the advancements were really going wild, you know? And I remember having a conversation with somebody who was a doctor around this time. And he was saying that he thought in the future, everybody would have babies in their retirement. (laughs) This is the craziest idea, but it made made the wait. It made this warped sense. He was like, the only way to have work-life balance is to basically do your career and then retire at 50 or 60 and have your child then because life expectancy is going to go to to 90 or 100. And I, I, I was like, whoa, this is the wildest thing I've ever heard. No, and it also sounds like you got to live 60 years without the joy of having a child. And I'm wondering also like this great like you know, you've got this maturity when you're 50 or whatever it is. Well, that's when people like become grandparents, right? That's usually how it is. I mean, back in Oklahoma, Tim's family, you know, you were a grandparent at 35, 35, 36. Um, uh, uh, wait, I lost my thread. 
there. Um, oh, there was a, I, not too long ago, about a year ago, I was looking um, over like what the average age of birth in, in the U.S. was. Oh, yeah. And it has crept up. It used to be like 22. It's now yeah. like 24.4, something like that. It's still rather right in the sweet spot. Um, we, we happen to live on the coasts. We're part of the chattering class. You know, people are having babies in their 30s and into their 40s. But I have to just say something funny and I'll put a picture of it in the show notes. So my daughter and I always send each other interesting, funny things we see on um, Instagram. And this one was <laughs> when you ask a first grade class to write letters to people in a nursing home. <laughs> And what it was was oh, a picture, no. oh, and it's no. a picture. It's a picture of an hourglass, like with the sand running down. And the kid wrote, "Time's almost up." <laughs> but in a way, that's true. He's okay, not like lying. no, that's right. You've got wisdom, right? You have you have your child instead at sixty. You got all this wisdom. You're probably a little crankier too. I'm sure the kid's going to appreciate that. You're going to have a lot of patience, you know, and then you're dead at 72 or something. It's like, you know what? I don't think until again, we have the West world, you know, walk into the, 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 uh, whatever, the little capsule and we can change everything. We're having babies at a point where you might not think you're ready for it, but guess what? I mean, we, we have a whole entire episode where I talked about this, where it's like, I became an adult because I had a child and I am so grateful to her. She made me a grown up. She gave me my life. And that is something that when you're completely anti-birth and anti-fetus, that I think is probably a sort of unimaginable um, paradigm. But I'm, I'm here to tell you it's true and I definitely am not, I'm not the only one. I wonder if you have any thoughts about the despair that's going on uh, on social media. I've mostly tried to stay away from social media over the last couple of days because I find a certain ambient rage um, that is difficult not to take into my system. But I, I dipped in a few times. One of the things that really concerns me, <clears throat> I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm predisposed to this because I live in Texas, but that it, it amplifies a resentment state by state. In other words, the culture divide that already feels like it, the grooves are so deep. I was just seeing a lot of stuff like, I'm getting the hell out of Texas. I'm never moving to Texas. You know, I, I saw somebody that uh, had a child who was in California. And the, the young, I think she's like a teenager. And she said something like, well, I guess I'm never leaving California. Um, well, this is very, you know, I remember... Um, when Reagan was elected and, and meeting people that were like teenagers, like I'm moving to Canada, you know, every time there's something that people don't like, I'm getting out of this country. I hate my country. I'm going to hang my flag upside down. Well, you know, you live in a country of, I don't know what it is, 300 million people. I, I don't know how many people there are in America, 308, something like that. Um, you have a lot of, go, go, go meet your neighbors, go meet them and realize that mostly they're like awesome people. And I'm talking about your neighbors in Oklahoma or in Alaska or in Missouri or in New Jersey and realize, and I'm going to put a link to a little post I had with my daughter about this. Um, can I tell a little story just for the heck of it? Super quick. You may. No. Okay. Uh, actually, no, I'm just going to put a link, but go, go look okay. at the link. In the I show know, notes. I'm curious because, about the story. Um, all right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you then. Uh, it was back when uh, Roe v. Wade had 
the leak had had been broken. She was in Oklahoma uh, working on reservation dogs. She was in Shawnee trying to pick up some kind of props or something. She was really hungry. There was exactly one place to eat in Shawnee, just kind of like an old-timey diner. And she walked in and uh, it was full of like, kind of like big, bulky, white, Oklahomans, uh, and there was a picture of Trump on the wall, and there were guns on the wall, and Fox News was on, and they were talking about um, Roe v. Wade, I guess. And she sent me a picture. She's like, guess where I am? I was like, oh, interesting. What's the climate like? And she's like, well, let me tell you. She said, I said, I came in, and you know, I'm the only person that looks like me here by far, young, tall, Native American girl. And I uh, sat down. Everybody was sweet as pie. There was definitely no one cheering at the news or anything like that. People were watching. They were talking. They all knew each other, obviously. They were all like in their 60s or whatever. But there was one guy. She thought he was kind of giving her the stink eye. He, she, she just, and she's like, well, you know, maybe he thinks I'm a liberal. Maybe he doesn't like Native Americans. I don't know. I don't know what this is. Anyway, so she finishes her food and she gets up to pay. And the gal's like, oh, no, honey, that's fine. Mike got it. And she turns around and it's the guy. And he oh, looks wow. at her. He looks at her and he goes, we're really happy to have you here. Oh, wow. And she said to me, Mom, those people were so nice. I'm like, that's right. And I'm glad that you, as a girl who grew up in New York City and in Los Angeles, who, you know, certainly has friends that are convinced all of those people are white supremacists, I'm glad that you understand that people are people. Um, it is not that they are the bad people and the good people. It's that we have a difference of opinion, and these opinions can run super hot. But you realize that, like you said, they're good people. And she's like, yeah. And you know what, mom, the food was really good too. Mm. Anyway, um, that's, that's like, if you are, if you are feeling this way, a young girl in California, um, get to know your neighbors and maybe understand why people are thinking the way they are and realize that they're probably a lot more tender hearted than you think they are. Not across the board, but um, that, go ahead. One of the, the gifts of living in Texas, and I do believe it's a gift, is that I am not surrounded by people that agree with me. Mm-hmm. I realize that that is, um, for a lot of people, just an unassailable good about living where they are, that everybody agrees with them. But I have gotten to meet and love people that see the world very differently than me. They vote differently than I do. They believe uh this abortion. I, I have some friends who are pro-life, mm-hmm. which I, I wonder sometimes if that's true for some of the some of the most vocal opponents of this. Like, do you do, are you do you know anybody that is actually pro-life? Um, in in my world, they're all women, and they're all very very kind, good-hearted women that see this topic very differently than me. I believe this has been very world expanding for me, but I just would encourage anybody not to fall into this, this almost like ideological comfort food of hating states, talking about states as though they are trash. (laughs) Um, I, I, I don't think it speaks well to the character, to your character or your view of the world and its expansiveness and what it can include. Because what we find is that the more dehumanized, the more we slap labels on each other, 
the less we see each other face to face and eye to eye, the more we can hate each other. And the easier it is to hate each other. It doesn't even feel like anything, but it takes a chunk out of our soul. Do you believe that? I, I It's practically all I write about. It really is. I mean, I think at the heart of just yeah. about every essay, the the I did on the the Doom Crusades the other day, which I thank Fair uh, for picking it for, as an article of the week this week. That was very sweet. Um, oh, nice. I know, so sweet. Um, it's at the heart of almost everything I write. It's like if you're if you're sustaining yourself on hate, what is that doing? What is your body made up of? You know. It's, it's, it's not good. And we have the power to stop that. The way you stop that is by talking to people and not saying, yes, everybody in Louisiana is trash. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We know this. I mean, we know this, that this is not true. <laughs> the pieces that I really appreciated reading this week were ones that turned away from despair. There's a story by Rebecca Traister, who's a friend of mine and a former colleague at Salon. Uh, she wrote a piece for New York Magazine that really, I thought, I, 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 I really felt like, uh, thank you, Rebecca. It feels like there's an adult in the room. This is someone that has some wisdom about the long tale of abortion rights in this country, the struggles that many women in, in many communities have faced uh, in the long march toward women's equality, which has been one of the most astonishing stories of the last 100, 200 years. Um, I think Rebecca's ability to 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 t turn the conversation away from despair and toward a hope. This was something like, like, this is what we can do next. This is something I heard in Francis Kissling's conversation with Megan Daum on the Unspeakable podcast, which we, we linked mm -hmm. to yes. uh, when this uh, opinion was first leaked. You know, this is the kind of thing I want to hear. I want to hear people calmly turning me away from, from a sort of, anger and outrage that is inevitably going to burn out. I understand, first of all, I understand that feeling, but I just want to say that as fuel, it is short lived and it will turn against you and it will eat you too. And it, it engenders, it engenders <clears throat> that in the other side. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's aren't right. people, I mean, when people say they're exhausted, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, you've been, you've been, um, you know, hitting that hate button for you know five or six years now and um i i read somewhere uh or i heard on some podcast saying are we are we in for another summer of rage like we had in you know 2020 right i mean first of all i really hope not um but second of all i i wonder if people have also just really burnt themselves out like how how long can you be sustained by rage it's it's not it's not good fuel. It because just like you said, it eats at you. Okay, it eats at yeah. you. So, I was just reading a story a few days ago that that maybe a week or two ago that was that was asking the question of why we haven't seen more outrage over the Roe v. Wade stuff, because it was almost certainly going to be overturned, and the answers were, you know, like we're burned out, like we've done two years. Of like, and uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nancy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Nancy, sorry. It's so hot. What are you trying to do to me right now? <laughs> Nancy sorry. has lifted her shirt and is fanning herself and showing. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> this is only fans material. This is. I'm trying to have a conversation. I don't. I'm trying to have a conversation about abortion 
and burnout and the soul of our I'm, country. I'm turning the conversation toward joy. this into just... an 80s music video. What's happening? <laughs> I'm sitting in the in this room where the sun is beating in here and all the windows are closed. I'm sorry. I'm a little hot. I'm sorry. I'm turning the conversation toward joy and beauty, Sarah. Yeah, that's the truth. I, that I, is I the actu- truth, listeners. I, 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 I actually physically did that. Um, in any case... I interrupted you. Oh, anyway, the point is that they were they were burned out. Look, you know, two years of this, I think there's going to be a there is an open question as to what this sort of like social movements and social protests and stuff like their ability to affect change. Like, is that useful? Uh, One of the things I've heard from my friends uh, about Women's March and and some of the different protests that have gone on, you know, the huge ones, was that it was good for them, right? Like it was it was a good communal experience yes. to connect with other people. Okay. I know that. I mean we know that with all of these marches, but what does it do? But but that, but the other but then the the hanging question is, what does it do? We we saw this, I mean, as someone who covered Portland, you know, in minute detail and over a period of months, what did all of this rage do? What what has changed? It's not it's when when you're just about this sort of feeling of community. I get it. People, you know, get out in the streets. You're screaming. You're amongst your people. It's like being in a mosh pit. Sure, it's fun. But when you're in a mosh pit, you get up the next day. Maybe you're like you're kind of bruised, and you go about your life. What have you? Do, what what happened? You got to work quietly to get things done. Like you don't get a book written by standing around and shouting about your book. You get a book written by sitting down and doing the work of it. And if people want things to change, they're going to have to do the work of it. And that is not just shouting. It's not. I'm sorry. I don't. I mean. Anyway, I, I don't want to. You can. Yeah. You can I mean, to me, mom, I think moments like this. I, I, I'm not one that's ever been hot on protests. I mean, to me, it always turns back to a sort of quiet, contemplative question of what do I want my work in the world to be? How can I be of use? Um, what yeah. is it that I want to add in the in the in the small amount of time that I have here, and the gifts that I've been given? Can I ask you a question with six minutes left? But I also want to just say everything you just said. I mean, we know we met, we kind of fell in love and we wanted to do this. (laughs) I don't want to get too mushy here. Everything you just said is, is why I do the work I do. How can I be of use here with the small number of gifts that I have been given? How can I make the best use of them and, and, and continually check myself to make sure that now it continues to be useful. Like that is why I'm here. Period. Yes. Now you may ask a question, Sarah Hepla. Do you ever wonder why you're on Twitter? Uh, no. Um, I did read a really good post. I think it was under persuasion yesterday about a dude who got off Twitter. It was so, oh no, it was actually on this movie site. Uh, the, um, I'll think of it. Anyway, maybe I'll put a link to it. Um, It was really funny and really caustic about why he left Twitter. I have had, on balance for me, the most beautiful um, relationships that have leached over into real life, have leached over into my work. It's an opportunity to push my work into the world, to see others' works. I love Twitter. Can it be a raging hellhole? Yes. Have I muted people that 
hate me that I'm sure read my posts and continue to say horrible things about me that's left over from Portland stuff. I'm sure it's there. I don't see it anymore. I, I've like curated my Twitter experience. Um, I, I love Twitter. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay on it for now. I'm going to stick. What about you, Sarah Hepler? Sometimes I wonder if the risk reward is there. I mean, I just, I've never seen anybody's career get made by a tweet and I've seen people's careers get undone by a tweet. And so there's such a high risk factor that I wonder if the reward is there. I go through days where I'm like, this is fun. I'm talking to people. It's funny. Twitter is is a way to connect when I'm working at home. And then I go through days where I wonder if it just doesn't take more out of me than it gives. So I'm a little bit more there in the, in the center. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I don't think, you know, um, there's no such thing as like overnight success. So... I don't know that it's possible to become a big success like with a tweet. I guess you can have a viral tweet that, you know, then you get 30,000 followers, but of course you got to keep that up. You can't write one good article and then you're famous forever. You got to, you got to keep doing the work. Um, uh, yeah, you have seen people, um, brought down. Um, but you know, my hope is that they can come back. They have good allies. There is something I forgot to ask you. I should have asked you at the beginning of the show. Well, two things. I think you know I the, might know what you're going to ask okay. me. Okay. The first thing I'm going to ask is what's the name of this podcast? <laughs> Smoke them if you got them. The second thing I'm going to ask, because I'm always the one doing this, Sarah Hepla, can you please tell the listeners why they should become paid subscribers to this podcast? There's so many reasons. <laughs> one of the reasons is that we're entering this media marketplace. Oh God, you're going to add, I'm going to get like discursive here. Because <laughs> you really need to <laughs> look, you know, we've, we've, things are not free. And if you love them, you need to support them. This is something that Nancy and I do because we love it. But in order for us to do it, um, we need your support. Yeah. And we're going to start putting stuff behind paywalls. This is where Nancy is a much stricter mom than me. I feel very bad <laughs> even saying this. I'm like, no, we'll still give it to you for free. But Nancy will always say like, listen, we're going to start putting stuff behind paywalls. We're, you're, you know, you're going to miss us when we're gone. We've given you a little taste. Well, uh, this is the 22nd recorded episode and we've only so far put two behind paywalls. And then we've had some other articles that have been free. So this is basically like the 26th or 27th um, piece we've put out. And we've only had two behind paywalls. This one, we're not going to paywall because this is a very hot issue. I want to hear from people. I want them to join the conversation. But yeah, guys, we we do it. We love it. But really do become becoming a, a paid subscriber. It will really help us out and help us to keep doing this and help us to keep doing this reporting. Obviously, tell your friends. That is the number one thing that spreads the word is tell your friends. Forward them the uh, forward them the link. Uh, have them write to us. They they want my cookie recipes. I'll give it to them. Whatever. Um, but yeah, do 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 consider doing that. This one will be free. But I don't know about the next one, Sarah Hapla. I've, I've heard from so many people that say that listening to us is good for their soul, and this well, talking to you is good for my soul. And mine so too. I'm that is reward in enough for me in a way, but I think that if that is true for you and you want to see, you know, you want to hear more conversations like that, this, it's something worth supporting. Yep. And 
Oh, and, and, and so, just so you know, when you go to click those boxes, it's uh, it's $8 a month, $80 a year. And then there's this little blank box. That's put in what you want. That's literally pay what you want. You want to give us a big old glug of money? I support that. Uh, if you want to, you know, just just what you're comfortable with, we'll, we'll take it. Um, and we love doing this for you. We're going to keep doing it. Uh, probably in the next couple of days, Sarah Heppel, I'm heading back down to the city today. I've been reporting my butt off. Oh, you asked me a question and I'll finish it and then we'll finish up. Um, have I been on the social medias? I haven't been on the social medias since this happened. I've been up at my mom's. Uh, I've been reading a, a pretty funny book by Jerry Stahl, a new book by Jerry Stahl, S-T-A-H-L. Um, and I've been reporting. I've been going around to talking to people and I'm going off to talk to someone else today and then back down to the city to do that because that's also real life. We all have issues we care about, but there are other issues we care about. So I have decided I it was not something I'm going to um, swim around in too much. I'm instead going to take a dip in my mom's pool. So um, that's what I've been doing this weekend. So. Well, I wish everyone peace and calm at a yeah. fraught time and remember that we're in this together. Yeah. All right. Sending out big love. Thanks. See you later. Bye. Bye. Traveling with me